Each week on the Illuminate podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. Hello, and welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Maria Mazuffer, and you're listening to episode 101 with Heather Dimitrios. Heather is a critically acclaimed author, writing coach, and certified meditation instructor. She has her MFA in writing from Vermont College of Fine Arts, and her honors include a Pen America Discovery Award, Barnes & Noble Best Book, a Goodreads Reader's Choice nominee, and so much more. On today's episode, you'll learn more about Heather's latest book, Codename Badass, a biography about Virginia Hall, one of the CIA's first female spies and a World War II hero. Heather will share what drew her to this story and how we can all take inspiration from her work. We'll dig into how to develop a positive relationship with your creativity, the benefits of meditation, especially if you think it isn't for you. I'm so thrilled to share this conversation with you today. If you love this episode, make sure to give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Subscribe, share the episode with your friends, and I really hope you enjoy. Thank you. Excited to be here and chat with you. Yes, so am I. I've been looking forward to our conversation all week. Um, to me, Heather, you are the ultimate multi-hyphenate. You know, you're an <laughs> author who's written in multiple genres. You're a writing coach with your own teaching business, a professor, a certified meditation instructor. I hope I'm not missing anything here. <laughs> well, goddess and world dominator, obviously. Yes, that is obviously <laughs> what it amounts to. <laughs> um, and I'm so excited to kind of chat to you today about how, how all of these different facets of kind of who you are and what you do connect with each other. But, you know, before we get into that, what I've always wanted to uh, hear from you is when did you first know you were a storyteller? Mm, I think... Gosh, I think almost it's always been a thing I've known. Um, I have all these journals in my basement and they begin when I was in kindergarten. And that was like my first diary. Like it has little hearts and it's plastic and it's very <laughs> that, you know? Um, so it. it was very much like always recording things. But um, actually ever since I can remember, I've told myself stories before I go to bed um, it's like the only way I can fall asleep. And so um, that's just how I kind of self-soothed, I guess, from the mm -hmm. very like earliest memories of my life. And then, um, you know, I would be like putting on plays for my family and my daycare center when I was a kid. And it's just always kind of been the lens through which I explored the world and understood the world. And sometimes it was an escape. And sometimes it was actually like shining a light on something I needed to look at depending on what it was. But um, 
you know, my family, I, I'm not, um, religious, but my family raised me in the Christian tradition. And so that is just filled with story. So from my earliest years, you know, there's also all these, you know, myths and stories being kind of passed on and told and retold in different kinds of ways. So, um, you know, and then obviously a huge reader. So yeah, story is, is, is just kind of in, in everything in my life. And then I just very quickly gravitated toward that. I mean, I do think that sometimes, uh, very often, especially in the generation, I'm an like early millennial grew up in, um, you know, a lot of girls were kind of not encouraged to go into the sciences or math or things like that. But I genuinely, um, gravitated on my own towards, you know, the arts and, um, and my family was really supportive of that, you know, taking me to bookstores and museums and plays and, you know, whatever. And so, um, you know, that was just something that was always just who I was. And so when I was, you know, applying for college, it was like, obviously, I'm going to be a theater major. And then it kind of went on from there. So yeah. Wow. I love that. I love that it's something that's always been a part of you that you took the time and it sounds like your family did too, to nurture that in you. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, can can relate to that, that, you know, but I think the amazing thing is you you allowed it to shine, you know, even even when you got to college. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's also, I like that you asked about stories and being a storyteller because, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't publish my first book until I think I was 30 or 31. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd been writing my whole life, but I really focused on theater from, I would say all of high school. And then that was my major in, in university. And then my early twenties, I had a theater company and was, you know, directing and all these sorts of things. And so, um, you know, when I look back, I, I do see the through line as one of storytelling. And there's just so many different ways to tell stories that I like not putting myself in one box because, you know, I was at, at um, the Walker Art Museum the other day. I live in um, the Twin Cities now, and it's an amazing modern art museum in, in Minneapolis. And there was this really cool installation of chairs. And it was just these chairs hanging from the ceiling. And I turned to my husband and I was like, I'm kind of interested in like art installation and visual art now. Like I kind of want to do something like this. And it was very cool to, to feel like, well, I'm a storyteller. This is one way to tell a story. I can do that. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think, yeah. And and, and that's kind of why I, I also wanted to ask you that because people don't always realize that we're telling stories all the time. You know, it is, like you said, that visual art installation. It's stories we tell ourselves about who we are as well. Um, you know, even how we explain a day, you know, we're, we're always telling stories. Um, so what made you move from that theater background to choosing, at least at the moment, the novel as a medium for your creativity? I think I always, I mean, not I think, I know that I always assumed someday I would publish a book. And when I was much younger, I thought, oh, yes, I'm going to write novels. And then it was like, maybe I'm going to write plays. And then, um, you know, then I focused on theater and, and that was where I was at. And um, and then the, the recession hit in 2009. And at around that same time, I was living in Los Angeles, which is where I'm originally from. And there was a big writer's strike. 
Um, so Hollywood shut down and um, I had been given um, the assistant directorship position um, at one of the very large theaters in Los Angeles under a very famous um, director who now does film. And it was like, it was like my big moment, you know, to direct. And, and I was thinking, Oh my God, you know, this is how I'm going to get eventually get to Broadway. And, um, and then we lost all the funding, you know, because this strike happened, the recession happened. And they're like, we're not going to fund this play. Um, And at the same time, I was also doing um, independent theater with my own theater company and then directing for other small black box theater companies and um, was just meeting other female directors who were also having the same struggles I was, which is that we weren't being paid hardly anything. In fact, they were paying, you know, the lighting designers more than us, even though we were the directors and doing like way more time, you know, on the play than they were. And, um, you know, all of the, you know, sexism that happens in, in the entertainment industry is very much present there as well. And it wasn't that I was like discouraged and thought, well, I'm going to quit because there's a place for me as a woman. I was just seeing that, um, it was always going to be this constant struggle in a collaborative effort where you can't necessarily depend on people. You know, I had actors who were in my play who, who told me, Hey, I'm auditioning for a commercial. And if I get it, it's, you know, it shoots on opening night. So I won't be able to make the play, but it's one night of work for $15,000. Oh, wow. So I have to take it, you know? And I'm thinking, Oh my God, that's our play, you know, like, but then, I see where, you know, their situation too. And I just thought, man, I, the collaborative stuff was, I finally had to walk away because of that. And so I thought, you know, that's okay. You know, when you're a writer, yes, I've I've done collaborative things as a writer, but I felt like, you know, at least I can do my own thing and, you know, nobody's going to like walk out on me and then I can't make my art. You know, when you're a director in the theater, it's, you're completely dependent on all the other people unless you're like a one person show, right? Right. Um, and so, yeah, that's what made me finally kind of turn to make that pivot. But I do miss the theater a lot. And I often talk about um, trying to find ways to go back and maybe do some sort of more site specific stuff like Sleep No More, um, Punch Drunk Companies mm-hmm. production and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I could definitely see that in your future, Heather. Um, I, I love the kind of combination of those two things. And It's amazing to see how, you know, as you said, 2009, the recession, when you started to have these ideas about, you know, pivoting into writing novels and you've had amazing success over the last, you know, 10 plus years, as I mentioned, writing adult fiction, young adult fiction. And of course, your most recent release that came out in September, your very first biography, Codename Badass, the story of Virginia Hall, a World War II spy that most of us have not heard of yet. Um, What brought you to a biography and Virginia Hall? (laughs) You know, honestly, I would just say curiosity because, um, and I always feel like that's the... um, main ingredient in art making and i i went to go visit a friend in dc and it was a rainy day and she was like what do you want to do and um one of my other friends had said hey did you know there's an international spy museum there and i did not and um as you know my secret desire not so secret actually i'm quite public about it embarrassingly so is that i always wanted to be a spy um (laughs) so of course i had to go to this museum and there was this very 
not small, but not big, you know, part of the museum where they um, featured Virginia Hall. And I've never heard of her. And they had her radio from the field. Um, and I don't even know how she was able to keep that, by the way. It's, it's like military property, but whatever. So her radio from the field, all her passports. And there was this little... Um, plaque that said the incredible limping lady and I found out that she was an amputee she was one of the Nazis most wanted spies she was this incredible woman one of the first women in the CIA the only female civilian to receive the distinguished service cross in World War II which is um, the military's second highest honor I mean it's like a she's amazing and I had never heard of her and um that was kind of shocking to me, actually, because I'm somebody who's, you know, super into World War II stuff and spies and, you know, amazing women. And I just couldn't believe it. So I thought, well, I've got to write a book about her. And as I was coming home from D.C., I think at the time I was I don't know if I was living in Boston. I think I was living in New York at the time in Brooklyn. And um, it, it, the voice of it came to me and it sounded like an episode of Drunk History. It just <laughs> totally did. And I thought, oh my God, I think I'm going to write a biography and it's going to sound like a drunk history episode, but like really well cited. <laughs> and that's what yeah. it became. <laughs> well, I have to say I'm about two thirds of my way through the book right now. And the writing style is so refreshing. You know, I'm not someone who typically am drawn to biographies, but I am drawn to World War II and spies, as you know, as well. Um, <laughs> and you've managed to layer really important historical events, Virginia Hall's experience in them with really bold language, sarcasm, modern references. How did you choose to write it in this way? I, I know you just said, you know, it came to you, but it's so unique that um, I was just wondering if anything else inspired you to, to, to write it this way. You know, I think it was kind of the way I talked about her when I got home, um, when I told my husband about her, my friends. Um, it was very much this real excitement. And the language I was using, I, you know, I said, I can't, you, you have to hear about this badass. She's such a badass, you know. And um, I would explain her life story in this very colloquial kind of way. And I thought, you know, I love history and, um, you know, I, I love nonfiction. I am super interested in learning new things and reading about fascinating people, but I mean, pick up almost any biography and it is dry as toast with no butter. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> it is, and you're like, this person lived an incredible life and you've rendered it into this like very boring academic, you know? And I mean, honestly, I think, because of, you know, if you think about it, um, I don't have the stats with me right next to me, but I was, I just wrote an article about this, that, you know, the percentage of biographies, the, the overwhelming percentage, it's no surprise, they're about men, specifically white men, and then they're written by men, specifically white men. And a lot of those people come from an academic background where, you know, it's kind of this, um, assumed language and approach to biography that's like, this is how you do it, Right. And it's been really cool to see, I mean, even just like with Drunk History and other things, you know, seeing, um, you know, like the uh, Notorious RBG, you know, just seeing the yeah. ways in which people are kind of pushing that envelope a bit. Um, and so I think in part it's because there's more women's voices and, you know, there's a recognition that, you know, are you really doing justice to someone's life if you turn it in, into this dry 
thing that, you know, renders what they did just kind of like something that sits on your bedside table and gathers dust. You know what I mean? Right. Um, Yeah. So for me, you know, I wanted it to be, I wanted the reader to feel the same urgency and sort of all in roll up your sleevesness of, you know, um, working in the French resistance in Nazi occupied territory. Um, And I felt like that language had to be the language we would be using today to really convey that, you know. Absolutely. And I have to say, you know, you make the history side of it so accessible and really interesting and enjoyable. You know, I'm someone who actually when I'm reading a nonfiction book, sometimes I like to have the audiobook as well as the hard copy, which I have for for, for your book. Um, (laughs) And so I find myself, you know, I was driving listening to it the other day. And I'm just smiling and even giggling to myself at, you know, some of the really awesome references you're making. You know, you mentioned um, a pay gap earlier in the theater, you know, in the 2000s. You know, Virginia Hall was facing that as a very successful spy, you know, and you talk about the patriarchy and, you know, so many of these references that really help us put her story into context, which I really love. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the key is context, you know, um, really making history relevant. Um, And yeah, I mean, look at what's happening in the world today. You know, we see the same mistakes made over and over and over. And I think a large part of that is that we, we call these things history and we put them in these books and we say, well, that's done now. But it's not, you know, um, it's a continuing force, right, that's moving through time. I mean, space time, we won't get into all that, you know, physics, but let's just pretend time moves in a straight line, which it actually doesn't. But, (laughs) you know, so we're moving forward, or even if we say no, let's get into the physics and say, look, is is it cyclical and all of this, right? And so I think when you when you when you look at history, from a perspective of, you know, trying to see, well, how does this relate to my life today? What would I do in this situation? You know, I think um, it suddenly it goes from being, oh, I learned something to I I've experienced something that now informs my life, which is very different. Yes, absolutely, Heather. And that actually leads me to something that I was really asking myself while I'm reading her story is, you know, you you paint the picture so vividly of the impossible circumstance that she found herself in, in, you know, wartime occupied France with limited resources, limited means of communication with her, you know, fellow spies and, and supervisors. You know, she has at any moment she could be found out, um, you know, she has this cover as a journalist and as a woman, you know, very rare woman in this space, what do you think drove her to keep going? You know, she she always said um, when people, I mean, she really didn't talk very publicly, but to the, the two people really who interviewed her late in her life after she'd retired from the CIA, she was very dismissive of her own work, very, very humble, um, but just said, you know, um, I... I had friends in France, so obviously I I was going to help them. It was very simple for her. And I think, um, I think there was more to it than that. I think she's always been somebody. I mean, if you look at her high school years, she was always somebody that was audacious and, you know, doing the unexpected, um, kind of always yearning for adventure. And so obviously 
you know, the espionage world is going to draw a person like that. But, um, you know, there aren't a lot of people who look at a situation across the world. And even though she was serving in, um, in an embassy in Europe at the time when World War II broke out, um, you know, still she's an American, she could go home at any time, right? And so it's a rare person who can look at that and not see, oh, that's happening to them, right? Who can actually, she wouldn't use this language, but I will use my Buddhist language to say, you know, she's recognizing a, a, a sense of, of no self, really, and, and, and noticing like, well, what's happening to them is happening to me. There's fascism on earth. I am on earth, ergo, I will fight fascism, as opposed to like, oh, really sucks for those people in France. Good thing I'm in America. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So I think, it, I think it was a real um, a real sense of empathy and a real sense of service. I mean, for the CIA, they have six kind of guiding principles. One of them is service, and she actually in, in the agency represents service for them. And I think wow. that's a big part of why, yeah. That's incredible. I'm glad that she's recognized, at least within the CIA, for all of her all of her valiant efforts. You know, I um, I, I love I love how how you referenced the the simplicity of how she viewed that, and you know that is something that I'm I I, I can already see I'm I'm going to think about for a little while. You know, I was wondering writing a biography, I'm sure is very different to, you know, how you approach a work of fiction. I'm sure it's a much more, you know, intimate process in a lot of ways, getting to know someone and their life. What do you think you, Heather, have taken from Virginia's life that you are inspired by or trying to kind of, you know, bring into your own life every day? I think the biggest thing is how she she really just didn't take no for an answer, which kind of sounds bad in, in the current climate. So I'm not talking about issues of consent or things yeah. like that. But, um, you know, she was told no all the time um, by extremely powerful men in power and um, and also just by all kinds of people, even her own, you know, mother, you know, there are a lot of people in her life that just either because she was a woman or because she was disabled or frankly, because she um, she was not meek or overly, you know, um, she wasn't the kind who of, of, of woman who would kind of say, like, I'm going to use my feminine wiles to get what I want, which, you know, some women have to do that. And there's, I have no judgment of that. She, she was kind of seen by other men as one of the guys. And I think there were some men who admired that she was, you know, bold and, um, you know, appreciated that a woman would, would be that way. And then there were other men who were extremely threatened by that. And um, so she had a really hard time. And in the CIA itself, you know, while she was serving, I think it was every director that served over her um, had less field or combat experience than her. Um, you know, she wasn't promoted very much. She wasn't given any field assignments after World War II um, by the CIA proper, you know. So I think the fact that she just kept trying and she didn't give up and she didn't revert, you know, she didn't say like, well they don't really like that I'm outspoken. So I'm going to be more quote unquote feminine or, you know, whatever. She didn't do that. She was very unapologetic and um, kind of no nonsense. And the thing that I, I appreciate the most, I would say is the fact that 
you know, she shot herself in her own foot. Like literally that's why she's disabled. She shot herself in her foot on a hunting accident. I think she was 27 or 28. And, you know, rather than being like, Oh my God, I'm such a dumbass. Like I've ruined my life and just kind of go feel sorry for herself and like her wounds. She instead doubled down on her efforts to get out there and, and do what she wanted to do. Um, so there's just such a huge takeaway for that. Not only just for people saying no to you, and, and, you know, keeping on and having that very onward mentality, but also the idea of like, sometimes you're going to make mistakes and, um, that's just how it, how it goes. And you just have to keep picking yourself back up and moving along, you know, cause no one's going to do it for you. Yeah. I love that. And, you know, a lot of what you, you know, relay in the book is a, a lot of times she was in a lot of hot water, but you're right. She didn't spend too much time lamenting it. She just kept going. So I, mm-hmm. I love that. Um, you know, I, I, for one, am very grateful that there are writers like you uncovering these stories of our history, um, because we know that so much of what we what we've been taught isn't isn't def- isn't the whole picture. So, um, you know, I, I've, I've really been enjoying that. You know, Heather, I wanted to um, kind of switch gears a little bit and talk to you about um, a really interesting kind of one of my one of my favorite conversations you and I have had uh, and we've had many is you once explained to me that we are in a relationship with our creativity and that really changed my life. And I'd love for you to share what that means to you. Oh, I'm so glad that was helpful. Yeah, I I think, um, you know, oftentimes I see writers, but artists of all stripes, um, who are just miserable and, um, you know, who feel so guilty all the time about not getting to the writer's seat or the easel or whatever it is. Um, and who also use language um, to describe their creativity that's often extremely combative um, and and also just almost like the art sounds like they're in an abusive relationship, like a bad romance, you know? Right. And so I was kind of looking into the, the love languages, you know, the five love languages, and I was really intrigued by... Um, you know, this way of looking at relationship. And then I, I just thought, oh my gosh, this totally applies to, you know, our writing. So for example, my love language is, uh, my primary love language is service. And that's, you know, how I show people that I care about them. I do things for them. And, um, when I think about my writing, my writing is very service oriented. Even when I start out writing a story that, is something I just personally want to explore for myself or that sounds fun or is lighthearted. Um, if anyone's read anything by me, I do not write lighthearted things. And um, it always morphs into this thing that I want to like create that is medicine for the reader in some kind of way. But that's because my love language is service. And another writer, um, you know, their love language might be something totally different. And so that would inform how they approach their writing and what comes out of their writing. But um, because I know that my love language is is service, um, it informed the way that I could be in relationship with my writing, right? So um, for me, you know, service is often looking like showing up, right? And so 
I know for myself, the way that I know I'm in a good relationship with my writing, regardless of what happens on the page that day, is that if I showed up, then I showed my love to my craft, right? Um, and, you know, when you love something like your art, it'll it'll love you back eventually. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think, you know, for so many writers, um, I think it's fair to say for, for any artist, but, you know, primarily I work with writers and... Um, you know, our writing is so important to us. And yet we we treat it like crap, or we let it treat us like crap, or rather not our writing, but the inner critic, right. And so it's really thinking about, you know, how can this be a healthy, a healthy relationship, because you're absolutely with it for life. You know, if you're if you're really a writer, then that's, that's your lot in life. <laughs> so you've got to find a way to be happy with it. <laughs> yeah. And, and I just really loved how that is reframing it as a two-way street. You know, like you said, you might just say, oh, this is just so frustrating. And, you know, you're not saying, you know, just like with a friendship, when you show up, when you make plans, when you have a smile on your face, you get something back in return. And I think uh, for me, certainly, that was a real change is, yeah, when, once you get there, once you've shown your creativity that you are present, that you are listening, you'll be surprised what you'll get back. And so um, I think, like you said, you know, anyone who's um, working in any sort of creative space can really learn a lot from that. Mm-hmm. So Heather, what, what made you think, um, you know, once you were writing and publishing books that you actually wanted to work with writers? as well and and coach writers how did you make that uh decision as well you know getting published is of course for i think almost any writer that's the the dream like you're going to get a book deal but with a major publisher and all this stuff and um and there's a lot of great things about it but um it's a really painful experience for a lot of writers and it certainly was for me because publishing is a very difficult industry um, to navigate. And, um, there's a lot of heartbreak, a lot of ups and downs. And, um, I just didn't, I didn't have quite the mentorship or the resources at the time to, um, navigate that in a way that was good for my mental health. Um, you know, it really triggers that sense of wanting to be seen. Um, it can trigger scarcity, Um, there's so whatever you're dealing with, it'll find a way to really poke at. And, um, so I kind of had, you know, what felt like to me a a nervous breakdown of sorts, um, after my, I think it was after my second book came out and, um, you know, I had been a spiritual misfit my entire adult life and had meditated off and on, but, um, I finally started to get serious about a meditation practice and, that just completely saved my life, honestly. And um, as soon as it kind of, um, it was almost like I was seeing through like very dusty glasses and suddenly a lot, not all, but a lot of the dust was taken off. And I was able to, to not only get healing, but to kind of see things for what they were and to kind of reorient and to reprioritize and to not place myself worth in, you know, the product that I was, um, you know, selling as an author, or even the art that I was producing personally as a writer. And so um, 
I wanted to help other writers at least avoid what I went through. And if not avoid it, then have the tools to elegantly navigate that as best they can. Um, And so that's when I started doing that work. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And I think, you know, you have really sort of created a, a safe space for writers to think about their practice and their work and their creativity beyond, like you said, the product or when are you going to get published and how are you going to navigate that and really thinking about it holistically and really weaving mindfulness into a lot of the work that you do with with writers. What do you think um, for you on the page? Have you seen that difference once you started that mindfulness practice for yourself? How did you see a shift? I think the writing gets better, to be honest, because mindfulness is all about paying attention and slowing down and, and being present. And so the more present you are on the page, um, the more vitality you inject into the work itself, um, the more tapped in you are to sort of the human condition And so, I mean, I'm a very character-based writer. So for me, I felt like I was really able to create a container that was a safe space for me personally to explore the things that I wanted to look at and, um, you know, the questions that I had um, about different things. My last novel, Little Universes, I I joke that it's a 130,000-word Dharma talk because it really is about, um, you know, about beingness and grief and loss, expectation, um, identity, all these sorts of things. Um, I pack a lot in there, but at the time when I was writing it, I was really grappling with those things and, um, you know, self-worth and all of that. And so, um, I think when you're, when you're meditating, not only are you supporting yourself so much to have more flow and more focus and, more clarity, more dots connecting more quickly, all that good stuff. Um, but you just are more available to receive whatever wants to come through you, which sounds a little woo, but mm. that's my experience of it. Yeah, no, I love that. And I also love your your visual earlier of the of the dusty glasses and kind of, you know, removing removing some of those layers of dust. I'm sure a lot of people feel that way, um, you know, wh- whether they have a creative practice or not. Now, what what would you say to someone who says, you know, I tried meditation once, hated it, it's not for me, I can't sit down, my brain is too active, I have to keep going. Um, you know, what, what what advice would you give someone who who just, you know, feels that bit resistant or or confused by it? Oh, I would completely um resonate with all of those feelings. I mean, I had said all of those things myself. Um I had my first agent described my brain as a whirling dervish on steroids. I remembered it as crack, but then I looked at an old email and saw steroids and I was like, well, same difference. No, but, um, you know, but that's how she had described my brain, which is true. My, my brain is, it just goes fast, fast, fast. And, um, so it's, it's not a natural thing for me to do at all. Um, I, I wouldn't even say it, you know, there are some days where I really enjoy meditating and there are a lot of days where I don't enjoy it. Um, what I would say is that, um, we're human beings, not human doings. And 
unfortunately in in the lives that we lead now um, in the modern world there are just no pockets of silence there is no space mm-hmm. there's no expansiveness and so if you're an artist you'll have to find them and you know some people will say oh I do yoga or I run or whatever but there's something about and I think this is the key here about becoming a friend to your mind that is really only accessible when you are sitting in silence with your mind. Um, If you're running, you know, that's a very active thing. It's a full body experience. Um, Your mind is probably feeling clear because you're just focusing on your pace or whatever, right? But when you're sitting on that cushion, you have to um, look at what's coming up for you. And it really trains you I mean, honestly, the more miserable you are on the cushion, in some ways, the better. I mean, you should never be in physical pain. But if you're just like, God, I'm so bored or whatever, (laughs) I mean, that is incredible data for you to eventually create that little bit of distance where you're kind of the watcher, as Eckhart Tolle calls it, which sounds a little bit creepy, but, um, you know, where you can really observe how your own mind works and you see how revved up it is and you see the broken records that are playing and the thought loops and the patterns and all that fear and anxiety and it all comes up and you hold space for yourself. And um, I guess the biggest thing I, I, or biggest um, endorsement is that I'll just say one of the things I'm always been most afraid of is going to prison. Like just the thought of being behind bars and like being in prison sounds so awful. And once I got a serious meditation practice, I, it's like the first time I was like, oh, I have a place I can go to all the time, no matter where I am, no matter what happens, as long as I have working mental faculties, I have this whole universe inside me and I'm free wherever I am. And just know, just that was like, whoa, okay. That's powerful. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, if uh if anyone listening isn't convinced <laughs> by yeah. by that ode to meditation, um you know, you honestly made me want to, you know, definitely meditate um after after that. Um but but that but that is right, you know. I think getting to know our own mind and our relationship to it and creating some distance between us and it is um, such an expansive thing, as you said. So um, that 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 is wonderful. You know, it's kind of like what you were saying. Oh, sorry to interrupt. No, no, go um, ahead. Go ahead. It was like what you were saying earlier when you talked about. Uh, you mentioned, you know, being a storyteller, and then the stories we tell ourselves, right? Yeah. And so I think um, that's the one of the hugest things that I've noticed with meditation is just recognizing the stories I tell myself that aren't true. Right. And being able to unpack that and see the truth of the situation rather than a narrative, you know, that runs me and dictates my life in for no reason. Right. So I think, um, for anybody, but especially for, you know, creatives and entrepreneurs and anybody who's trying to do something with their own creative energy that is hard to do, you know, there's a lot that comes up a lot of that, um, you know, that limiting belief stuff that comes up. And mindfulness really helps you see things for what they are. Um, And that's off the cushion, there's so much that happens off the cushion. 
um, which to me is is the greatest benefit. You know, on the cushion is some tough work. You know, um, it's we always say it's simple but not easy, but off the cushion, it's like a com- in my experience a complete life transformation. But what I tell people is, you know, um, y- you know, see for yourself. You know, I mean, it, it's either true or it's not. And if you give it a real try, then I'd be really surprised if you know you didn't you didn't receive benefit from it. So. Yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more. You you definitely uh, converted me to to meditation in the past, and I, and I'll, I'll agree with you that you know giving it a try, just like with anything, it's not going to be the first or second time you know you try it. I'd say you know give it ten days, you know, mm-hmm. or you know at or or at least five days, and and like you said, see see that that feeling off the cushion. You know those. 10 to 15 minutes might feel like 30 minutes or, or, you know, might feel, might feel tough, but, um, but actually the, the benefits kind of are, are infinite. So. Yeah. And I think um, the tough love part of me comes in and eventually, you know, cause people will hem and haw. Oh yeah, I should, but I don't. And, and they do this with their writing too. And eventually I'm like, do you want to wake up or not? Right. And then with yeah. the writing, it's like, do you want to write or not? Like right. yeah, at the end of the day, you know, it, it's as simple as that, yeah. you know? Yeah, it, it is. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, along those same lines, you know, there are, there are a lot of people who are, you know, working every day, they have families, they have responsibilities, and they might be thinking, you know, I used to paint, I used to write, I used to love to play my guitar, it's kind of, you know, feeling dormant, feeling suppressed or stuck in the day-to-day life. How can someone kind of reawaken or cultivate their creativity again? I think it's really just a matter of starting, um, even if it's very, very small and being consistent. And actually, um, as you know, I love the book Atomic Habits, and I'm always suggesting it to people because I think it's a really fantastic um way of looking at habit building. And, um, you know, ultimately, you know, I think for a lot of people, they think, well, I can't do all of it. So I'm going to do none of it. Instead of, well, I have five minutes. So maybe I will sit down and sketch something for five minutes, I'll sketch the cup of tea on my table. And then I've got to go pick up the kids, (laughs) you know, Um, And just starting small and just, you know, the thing is with anything that you love to do, you might think you only have five minutes, but then suddenly it's like, oh, it's been 15, you know, Um, and then consistency is the key. So even if it's five minutes, but you do five minutes every day is much better than one hour once a week, right? So really having um, that integrated into your life. And I always talk about a holistic approach where you know, for writers, especially writers who are very busy, they can often feel like, well, I'm not really a writer because I have a full-time job and I have kids and I have this and I'm that. And I always tell them, you're a writer 24-7. You know, you're a writer when you're doing the dishes. You're a writer when you're grocery shopping because your entire palette that you use, your creative palette for your writing is life. So the more you can pay attention and the more that you can look at the world through the lens of a creative Um, the more it will inform your work. So if you start to position yourself in that way, it becomes a little bit easier to get to whatever your creative uh, medium is. Yeah, I I love that. And I think it's, you know, along the lines of what you were saying earlier is showing up, 
even if showing up, like you said, is for those five minutes, those 10 minutes, you start developing that relationship. You start developing that identity of yourself, you know, um, as being that, you know, musician or, or, or artist. So um, I love that. And I know, Heather, you have already um, been been talking to us uh, about, about a few of the things that I wanted to ask you is uh, what we ask all of our guests. Uh, I have three questions for you. Mm. Um, so my first question is, who is someone that illuminates your life? I mean, I guess I could be like really cheesy and say Virginia Hall, but I won't. Um, I, you know, honestly, I think, I, I really think it is whoever at any given moment that I'm having a real kindred experience with. And it could be, you know, um, it could just be someone I just met. It could be a writer that I'm working with and, and we're really connecting on something. It could be uh, a dear friend on the phone, but um, I really feel like when I have those tingly moments with somebody where it just feels like, wow, did we know each other in a former life, you know, <laughs> and, um, and we're inspiring each other and we're, you know, tripping over one another's sentences in, in a, you know, mutually respectful way, not an interrupting way. Um, I just love those experiences because they just kind of, they, they just ignite me in a way that is so exciting. I get lots of ideas. I get lots of energy. I, I get renewed hope in humanity. Um, and so that even that word illuminate, I feel like it's just this bright light that shines, you know? Um, and so and, and it's always serendipitous and it, you don't know when you're going to have a kindred moment. You just, you know, maybe you have like a best friend or something that you have it with on the regular, but in your everyday life, you know, when it happens, it's just the most beautiful, miraculous thing. I love it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, sometimes I've even had those moments with someone I've just met or met in a fleeting mm -hmm. moment on a trip. And you just can't believe that you haven't known each other before, or don't even speak the same language necessarily. So um, yeah, that, that those are incredible moments. Yeah. So this, this might be a hard one for you, Heather. Um, what is a one book recommendation you have for us? Oh my God. <laughs> and uh, if anyone who knows you, you are an absolute treasure trove for book recommendations <laughs> <laughs> of all kinds. Oh my gosh. Well, I will say um, that I, so, okay, so I, I'm going to kind of, it's like a two in one here, but I was reading John Green's The Anthropocene Reviewed, which I loved. And he mentioned the author, Amy Krauss Rosenthal. Um, who I think a lot of um, your listeners would probably be familiar with. Um, she wrote a modern love column um, saying that she was dying of cancer and was kind of like, you know, a wanted ad for a new wife for her husband. Um, so it was a really, really famous column. And then she did pass away not long after that. But I had never read it, read any of her work. And so I picked up um, her book, Encyclopedia of an Ordinary Life, and it is the most delightful, but deep, beautiful thing I've read in a long time. It's, you know, when you get one of those books and you're like, I kind of need to buy this for everybody I know. Yes. <laughs> so that happened with Dear Sugar, for example, like that. It's like a book like that where you're like, 
you want to put it into people's hands. And, um, you know, it's written in this really interesting way, too, because it's alphabetical and it's not in normal prose. It's like entries, you know, like dishwasher, closet, you know, like all different things like that, just like random things. And then she relates it to her life. But there's so many things that she says that you're like, oh, my God, I totally do that. And I didn't know that other people did that, you know. Right. Um, and just the poignancy of knowing, of course, that, you know, she did pass away rather young from cancer um, because she does talk a lot about impermanence and death and meaning. And, um, yeah, I actually have it right here next to me. So I have to I have to read this little part of it for you. It's at the very Please back do. of the book. OK, um, so she there's just all these like little gems all throughout. And at the very end, very end of the book, it's like not even in the book proper. It's like in the back matter, like on the back pages. Um, she, she, she does a lot of lists and this is a list at the top. It says, we all want it because, and then she has six things. We used to have it and lost it. You have it. It's something we should not have. It's pretty. We want everything. We imagine it will make a difference. Hmm. And that's it. Just that little list. And I was like, Oh my god. <laughs> it gives me chills. I okay, right? I'm definitely I'm definitely getting this book. Yeah, Encyclopedia um, of an Ordinary Life by Amy Okay. Krause. Perfect. Oh, yeah. wow. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um and our last question, uh, another small one, um but what is your message to the world? So this one is actually really easy for me because in my in my last novel, um it, I again, did I receive it from somewhere? Like, I don't know, but this phrase came to me. I think you know what I'm probably going to say because I say it a lot. Um, it was do right by the miracle just came to me and it just felt so right. And the character who said it was, um, you know, an astrophysicist, um, so secular person who um, nevertheless, you know, said that uh, this is a fictional character that I've made up, okay, but said that, um, you know, isn't it so amazing that when you look at how we're made of the stuff of stars, and you look at all the things that had to happen in the universe for you to exist, and like, even if you just work backward, you know, your grandparents had to meet each other, and then there was a war, and then this happened, and that, you know, go back and back and back and back, and then the earth was formed, and all of that, and you think, wow, all of that for me to be here. And I look at the world around us now, and I just see how zombied out we are by tech and, you know, by social media, um, by especially here in the West in America, materialism, I'm certainly guilty of that. Um, all the ways we try to fill, fill, fill all the time and space in our lives with things and activities and whatever. Um, and then we die. And that sounds really sad, right? And so to me, I think if we keep this idea of like, you know, how can I do right by the miracle? The miracle being the fact that you are even here in this human, you know, body with a mind and all these things, you know, um, and we all have our issues and we have our mental health issues and our physical issues and our family issues and all of that. So honoring anything that makes somebody's life harder and makes it harder for them to do right by the miracle, like Virginia Hall losing her leg. Um, but really looking at that question and saying, okay, like, am I doing right by the miracle? And I feel like it's a gut check for me um, all the time. In fact, I'm going to get a tattoo of it. Honestly, I really am because, you know, sometimes as, as mindful as I try to be, you know, I forget 
and I'll get so wrapped up in stress and worry about whatever. And then I'm sitting in bed at night and I think, oh my God. And so just really quickly, the reason why I think this phrase might have even come to me is I, when I was doing my meditation teacher training, there was a Zen priest that came in um, one night to give us a talk. And um, he works in hospice in New York. And if anyone listening has met a, a Zen teacher, they'll know that um, they say these things that sound like, you know, um, really intense and like hard to hear, but then they laugh. Or like you ask them a question and they just say yes, even if like that is not the answer to the question. (laughs) It's like all riddles and, you know, um, and so at the end of this class that he taught and I was laughing so hard because my husband is a Zen um, Buddhist and he's been practicing for well over a decade. And so I'm like, this is old hat for me. I I know how these people roll. But um, a lot of people in the class were like, what is happening? This is crazy. (laughs) And then at the end of the class, he looks at us and he smiles and he says, okay, it's nine o'clock. It's time for us all to go home. And then he smiles and he says, that is one less day of your life. (laughs) That was it. (laughs) And I could feel everyone in the class be like, oh my God, existential crisis, you know? And for me, I was like, damn, that is a Dharma bomb right there. And so like that just really stuck with me of like, if at the end of the day, you're like, that's one less day of your life. Like if you look back on your day, how'd it go? You know what I mean? Right. It's, it's like, it's a big thing, but it's it's real, you know? It is. And, and I love that idea that you said about it being a gut check for you. You know, Mm -hmm. do right by the miracle. You know, I'm here. I'm here. You know, I'm present, you know, and and what am I what am I making of it? You know, big, big or small. Um, So I I love that. And I think it's so easy for us to get wrapped up in our in our to do list and, and all of our stresses and just taking a moment to think about that, I think, is very powerful. Yeah, and I think it's what's also important because we are a very um, accomplishment-driven culture. So when I talk about doing right by the miracle, I'm not saying like, okay, so go cure cancer. I mean, that's great if you can do that. But, you know, like I think it's an amazing use of your time if you were to go lay under a tree and look at the way that the light plays on the leaves. That is a wonderful way to honor, you know, having eyes that can see, you know, and yes. enjoy this earth um, as opposed to, oh, yeah, I, you know, um, stress texted my friend for an hour about something that happened at work, you know, and that's what I did with that hour. And then I right. felt even worse afterwards, right? Yeah. <laughs> or like, did I did I take five minutes to look outside and look at the moon? Um, yes. Which is which is one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> Me too. I love that. Is that is always like just pure joy. Always, yeah. always. Um, well, Heather, I could talk to you forever, but thank you so much for joining us today. And I have to say, I know you won't say it, but I recommend everyone go out, get a copy of Codename Badass. You will enjoy it listen to the audiobook. It will make you laugh. It will make you smile, make you feel inspired. And um, find Heather um, on, on her web- website. Uh, sign up for her newsletter where she has tons of goodies. If you're interested in creativity or writing at all, um, it is the place to be. Oh, thank you. Well, thank I you. feel like this is the place to be. This is a great conversation. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Heather. Okay. Thank- 
Okay, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much to Heather for her time and her words of wisdom. You can find more about her book and Heather in our show notes. Be sure to give us a follow on Instagram at the Illuminate Podcast and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite player. Thank you so much.